there's something in the workplace, it's, it's elsewhere too, it's something in the workplace called the toxic positivity bias, where everybody does happiness, contentment, and joy, and there's nobody to challenge what's going on. So it's like, cha-la-la-la, you know, and then you eventually, walk, you know, traipse off a cliff. But to listen, to maybe to make a space where you can ask the questions of those emotions so that people don't have to be overtaken by the emotions and become agitators, but to actually say, is there anything that we are feeling any kind of guilt or shame about? And then be quiet and let people speak to it. Is there anything where we're losing our energy or when we look at it, it's just feeling wrong? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Social Enterprise Alliance podcast. Today's episode is a really special one as we welcome Carla McLaren to the podcast. Carla is an award-winning author, social science researcher, and empathy pioneer, and her lifelong work focuses on her grand unified theory of emotions, which revalues even the most negative emotions and opens startling new pathways into self-awareness, effective communication, and healthy empathy. She is the founder and CEO of Emotion Dynamics, and the developer of the Empathy Academy online learning site. Today we talk through her newest book, The Power of Emotions at Work, Assessing the Vital Intelligence in Your Workplace. Lauren and I learned so much from this interview with Carla, as Carla helped us understand the power of understanding the emotions in a workplace and how this understanding can help us lead our teams and even the people we serve as social entrepreneurs. One note, we talk about the different kinds of emotions we all feel, including a brief conversation of suicidal thinking. If you're one of us who has struggled with this type of thinking, you may want to listen with a trusted partner. Carla, welcome to the Social Enterprise Alliance podcast. Carla, just thank you so much for joining us today and um, and sharing with us just about emotions and kind of your expertise around that, and especially as we talk about emotions in the workplace. Mm-hmm. But even more specifically, I think, you know, a lot of us are social entrepreneurs in our work. We have this empathy that kind of gets associated. We're trying to help other people. We're mm-hmm. trying to serve an underprivileged group of people. So I think by default, there's maybe more of an awareness of emotions around work and that's specifically the work that we do. So uh, this to me is a, a topic that I'm just really excited to unpack with you about um, because it feels like it might play a little bit differently in the social entrepreneurship space and maybe a little bit more intensely compared to regular work. I think for businesses or any kind of enterprise where people have um, a movement toward making things better or challenging things that are wrong, there can be some shadow created, uh, sort of what you resist, you become. And so that's something that's always so important to be aware of 
for instance, in the um, in the anti-racism movement, there is a, not everybody, but there are a couple of people who just take a bat to emotions, um, crying and shame and that sort of thing. And so the, they are against racism, the, the, but they are bringing that same fight, that same kind of inequality to the contents of the soul, right? So, so we want to make sure everyone feels comfortable except those emotions. <laughs> Right. We don't accept those at all, right? So I think it's so important to be able to to look at what we are attempting to change or, or improve or what we are attempting to fight and to make sure that we look at what what shadow we're creating. Or in sociology, they call it your intended consequence and your unintended consequence. Both need to get looked at. Uh, because a lot of times you'll see unintended consequences coming up and you'll be like, that's not important. We're doing this, but without realizing that any movement toward, you know, any kind of action will create a reaction, will create other actions around it. And I think that was is one of the hardest things to look at for anybody, because you have to accept that maybe there's something, there's some place for sadness to come to help you let go of something that doesn't work. You thought it was a great idea, but it doesn't work. And if sadness isn't allowed in that workplace that thing is not going to be able to be let go. And what about shame? If you realize that something you're doing has really strongly negative unintended consequences, then you realize we need to make amends. We need to fix this. We need to stop doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So so just for some context, um, you also wrote about 18 different emotions and kind of how they all have a place at the table. Mm -hmm. Could you give just a, as we start to get into the conversations around emotions in the workplace, could you give us a quick summary of, of those 18 and, and how they play with each other? Yes, there are, I can go by families. What we do is we organize them by families. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. There's the happiness family, the sadness family, the fear family, and the anger family. And, it's pretty easy when you're just coming into this work to be able to figure out, am I angry, happy, sad, or, you know what I mean? It's like, or afraid that it helps people begin to articulate between the different emotions. And in the happiness family, which is a family that most people are welcomed to and most people are allowed to feel, is happiness, uh, which is about feeling happy and merry and looking forward to the future and being like everything's great. There's contentment, which is more an inward facing emotion that says everything feels um, appropriate and I have behaved in such a way that I'm proud of myself and yay. So contentment might be light, a light version of pride, uh, but pride has some negative connotations as well. You know, pride is a sin. Um, and then Joy is the third member of that family, and Joy is that overarching, <clears throat> kind of ex expansive, uh, blissful emotion. And it's an emotion to be very careful with because uh, it is expansive, and it is sort of ungrounding, and that's one of its purposes. Um, the next family, Sadness. Sadness, which helps us let go of things that aren't working anyway. Grief, that helps us mourn something that is lost forever. It's the difference between sadness and grief is that you have a choice with sadness. You can or you can choose not to let it go. With grief, you have no choice. It's gone. And it's usually not anything you would have chosen. So the job is gone. The marriage is over. The person has died. The idea is over. It's like 
So grief is a kind of a more powerful emotion. Then there's situational depression, which we look at as separate from like bipolar or postpartum depression, other, you know, depressions that require maybe some medical intervention or counseling. Situational depression tracks to a situation. And it's an emotion that pulls your energy away when what is happening is not going to, is not going well right now and it's not going to go well in the future. So there's that pulling downward of depression is sort of like you're out of energy now, pal, because whatever's going on is not this. Nope. This is not the thing we want to be doing. And most people will fight depression because who wants to be told that they're not supposed to be doing the thing that they're doing, right? Nobody wants to hear that. So depression is not a very beloved emotion. Um, and then the final emotion in the sadness family is the suicidal urge. And in my work, Dynamic Emotional Integration, or DEI, we say the human body, this person is off the table when the suicidal urge comes up. So what we do is we turn that urge toward the complete cessation or the complete ending of a thing, toward something in your life, this loneliness, this situation, this, you know, inability to find um, respectful people. This, like, it's the suicidal urge comes to end things. And that's the rules. Like, it's not about ending me or you. As we've all experienced, if we have a, a friend or loved one who committed suicide, it's a, it's a, a pretty extreme shock. And so it's not something we want to play with, but we do want to be able to utilize the, the intense energy. When I feel a suicidal urge coming up, instead of saying, oh my gosh, now I'm going back into, you know, major depression, I kind of look around and go, what needs to go? What needs to go? Not just go, but go. Like no questions asked. And there's always something. Um, so it's, it's a emotion you need to learn how to work with, but mm -hmm. It has its really important purpose. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that is valuable to just un talk through all these different emotions is, you know, at first you think of something like an anger mm -hmm. and and want to say, hey, I want to avoid that. But yeah. um, but the reality is it's trying to tell us something. It has a purpose. So even this suicidal urge in the way that you described it, like, oh, right. What are the things that just need to go away immediately? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that's a helpful context for that emotion and how powerful it can be. What I realized a couple of years ago about DEI, it is a way to reframe emotions. And reframing is so powerful if you can reframe your attitude, if you can reframe your outlook and your viewpoint. But if you can reframe these emotions, for instance, sadness comes up when I need to let go of something. Instead of thinking, why am I sad? This is ridiculous. I shouldn't be crying. You know, there's nothing to cry about. Um, only, only little girls cry, you know, that sort of thing. Instead of saying, oh, what needs to be let go of? Now I am a partner with my emotions rather than their puppet or their puppet master. I am now working one-on-one -on -one with these, you know, the, this intelligence that comes from within my soul. So it kind of creates a, a peaceful space in which to do the work of being human and reframing each of the emotions as helpful, containing gifts, containing genius, and having a knowledge that sometimes we don't have. Because I've had situations where I'll be going along, I do, 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 life is great, do, 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 and then I'll have the soft suicidal urge to go, I've been fooling myself. <laughs> and then I look at what's happening and it turns out, okay, 
um, yeah, something's wrong and it's not going to work and it needs to end. And I tend to be a person who like, well, I could always just rework it. You right. see, <laughs> I could always make this better. And my suicide lurch goes, nope. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the emotion that is called for at this time. <laughs> yeah. Now this feels super relating um, right now. Yeah. The anger family, which is about boundaries and, and behavior, is anger, which helps you set boundaries uh, from things that are coming in. So um, it's where your value, like what do I value is one of the questions for anger. So if someone comes from the outside and steps across one of your values or something that's very important to you or your boundaries, I want to see anger come up in some form. But because so few people know how to work with it, it's usually connected with violence in some way. And that's not really the heart of anger. That's not what anger came to do. But it's where a lot of people go with it. So anger has just a terrible, terrible, you know, wretched, um, it needs a better press, press agent, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's anger's job. It, it supports and protects you from, um, from challenges coming from the outside and helps you reset your boundary. And it gives you the power you need to be vulnerable. But most people miss that vulnerable part immediately. Mm -hmm. Shame is anger's sort of, guilt and shame is anger's sort of um, sibling. And whereas anger is watching the outside world to make sure your boundaries maintain their integrity, shame is watching your inside world to make sure that nothing you do is going to challenge or injure the integrity of another person. So you're not going to be a shameless mess in this world, just, you know, careening around like a pinball and hurting people, not even realizing you did it. So those two emotions are so important for the maintenance of healthy boundaries and healthy relationships. Both of these emotions are intensely relational. Anger and shame are about our position uh, as, as respectable, integrated people within our social world. Another anger family emotion is apathy or boredom. And this is an emotion that comes up to kind of give you a timeout when you can't set a boundary or the situation is such that nothing that is important about you is being valued in this place. I think of a really bad class in high school or college that you were forced to take because you were, you know, a psych major and you had to take this class. And the boredom there is protective. Because if people were going to say, this class is ridiculous and I should not, you know, everybody else in the class would be like, shut up, it's going to take longer now. (laughs) Now it's (laughs) just, just keep doodling. All right. So apathy is a very protective emotion when you can't set boundaries. So it helps you go interior. Mm. And the questions for apathy or the practice for apathy is, yeah, put up that apathetic, you know, facade. That's fine. But what would you prefer? So if you can work with your apathy, you can find out this place is not for me at all. This place is nothing. Where do I want to be? So apathy yeah. can help you see by understanding this place is nothing. What would be something? Mm. And the fourth anger emotion is hatred, which as we all know, can be an incredibly dangerous emotion. It's the emotion of virulent racism and virulent sexism and virulent transphobia. Um, Hatred, when people don't have skills for it, is just a weapon. But when people have skills for it, which is shadow work, they can evolve quickly in 
uh, in an afternoon. They can evolve 100 years in an afternoon if they know shadow work, which is was created by Carl Jung to help people work with things they hate, which means you have total boundary loss and you are... Um, you are enmeshed with something. Hatred is one of the strongest attachments you can have. Or, on the other side, something you are idealizing and idolizing in this fan behavior. And we don't want to go too far with fMRI studies because they're being challenged a lot. But in one fMRI study, it showed that hatred and adoration or infatuation were lighting up the same exact part of the brain, as mm. Carl Jung might have said. It's wow. uh, when we are in an infatuated adoration with someone, we are projecting onto them. And when we are in a hatred relationship with someone, we are projecting onto them. Uh, the projection wow. is exactly the same, but what is being projected onto them is different. Mm. Um, so it's a loss of the self. It's a kind of a catastrophic loss of the self. And if you can attend to it, you can not only bring yourself back, but integrate previously lost parts. So yay, hatred, if you have skills for it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And the last family is the biggest one. It's the fears. And it's got, it used to have six, and now it has seven emotions. <laughs> Fear, which is your uh, instincts and intuition about the present moment. Anxiety, which is your emotion that helps you plan for the future and meet your deadlines and and finish your tasks. It's a lot of energy and anxiety. There is another kind of a masking state emotion in the fear family, and it's confusion. And we are understanding it more as a liminal emotion or an emotion of almost kairos time, that time before time, that time beside time. When you move into confusion, it's saying, there's something here I don't understand, or there's too much input, there's too much for me to do, and it's almost like a, your your entire brain is taking a moment to not know, which is, for any of us who've been to school, normal school, there is no place to not know. You can't not know. You can't be confused. That is not allowed. And so confusion is a very difficult emotion to work with because we've been so kind of aggressively trained away from ever taking that moment to say, you know what, I have no idea. This is too much input. I'm confused. I'm conflicted. I got nothing. I can't make a decision, and nor should I. So confusion is this beautiful emotion that is in the trash heap with many of these emotions. And, um, yeah. If yeah, what I what we found is w when we're confused, we go, oh, I am now an impressionistic painting, and I'm gonna go over here <laughs> and not make any decisions. <laughs> Claude Monet would love me right now because <laughs> I have no sharp edges. Um, and then there's two um, connected emotions in the fear family: jealousy and envy, two of the most hated emotions we have. Um, envy itself is one of the seven deadly sins in Catholicism, and these two emotions work about how we are situated in the social world in terms of equity and justice, fairness, love, and attention. Jealousy focuses on our capacity to love and be loved and our position in our love relationships. It's a very important and protective emotion. And envy is continually checking out our position in terms of fairness, equity, monetary gains, our access to power and attention and 
that sort of thing. So these two emotions are huge, hugely important, and yet they're completely in the shadow. So we love these two, these two sort of twin emotions. Um, and then the last two emotions in the fear family are panic. And we have separated panic out as immediate panic where something's happening. Boom, you got to fight, flee, freeze, or flock to safety. You, that, that's it. And you usually don't even have to think those words. Your body will immediately choose whichever one's the best idea. And then there's what we call frozen panic, which is the panic that is from a previous panicking incident that we were not allowed to downregulate from or upload the information that we needed because we just survived something dangerous. So that frozen panic may come up. It's called, I think, very inappropriately, post-traumatic stress disorder. And I would just call it post-traumatic. We got to figure this out. It's not a disorder. <laughs> <laughs> right we've we've got to complete this thing and upload all of the survival information because if we're alive we're a survival expert um so yeah mm. wow wow that's really amazing and really you know fascinating fascinating work kind of parsing through all of these different emotions and i remembered all of them yeah that's so, i know that's so impressive you weren't even looking at notes or anything that's awesome I was like, oh no i hope i can do this yeah that was very impressive um and i think it's it's just really interesting um you know a lot of the conversations that we've had on this podcast have been about being a whole person and allowing those who you work with and those in your community, like whoever it is that you're interacting with or serving to also come to the table as a whole person. Um, and that means with any variety of emotions, because as you were saying, you know, each of these emotions tells us something about ourselves or our circumstances and gives us insight and knowledge on how, like what we need to what we need to change or what we need to keep the same in our own lives and just kind of helps provide that kind of roadmap. Um, so I'm just curious what you think about, you know, how, how do you see, and I mean, some, you know, you can, you can really see how, especially maybe more traditional workplaces are again, going to be more interested in the happy and content employee versus the apathetic or confused or angry yes. um, sides of a, of a human. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious to hear what you, what you see and what you've observed as far as these emotions in the workplace um, as it exists now. And then also like what could be, mm -hmm. how do we bring up this whole person, you know, emphasis to our work, to these workplaces, to these communities, you know, for the benefit of everybody? Like, what does that process look like in, in your in your mind? Thank you. It's such a good question because the workplaces, they're back in the 1800s or something with their <laughs> understanding of emotions. <laughs> like, happy people are peppy people and peppy people are productive people. Wow, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, like, if everybody, like, I go in to consult in workplaces, and people will have me come in and look at the problem employee. And I'm like, really? So let me go look at that employee. And what is the problem of their emotion, right? So they are having a lot of anger, or they are having a lot of anxiety, or they're having a lot of apathy. And so the first thing I ask is, what if it's anger, and it's about boundaries, are this person's boundaries being continually um, challenged or p trampled upon in the mm. workplace. Mm. 
Wow. Is there anything in the workplace that would make that anger come up? And so I'm using the emotions as, as data, as information about what's going on in the social world. And so if I see that there's nothing going on in the workplace that is trampling on that person's boundaries, then we'll say, okay, this is, this is a home situation. And so this person is a problem employee, but it's not a problem really. But I haven't found it yet. I, I literally have not found a situation in the workplace where someone is um, acting up, where they are not wow. acting up in response to the workplace. So with wow. apathy, what that would tell me is that there is no way for people to have what they need to have and in order to function appropriately in this workplace. Apathy drops over to protect the people from a situation that is dangerous to them if they were going to be engaged in it fully, right? Instead of wow, those lazy, yeah. apathetic people. Yeah. So how emotions show up in the workplace is like, a, it's worth a million dollars. If you <laughs> understood it, you would save a lot of money on consultation, you know, on workplace consultants because you'd be like, bing, it's done. Um, I also talk about keystones in a workplace. And these are people who... Um, who step up to to balance an unbalanced workplace and um, um, the people who step up to do the emotion work that other people either won't or can't do, um, I call them agitators. And they may be agitating for the good of the community, but because they are usually expressing an emotion that is considered negative and is not wanted, it won't help, right? Their their whole system is trying to help this unbalanced system stabilize and equalize itself, but instead they just get um, scapegoated. So, and a lot of times they'll get fired. And so what the survivors will learn is, yeah, you can't do that emotion either. And so they'll go even further interior and more apathy. And then you'll see you know, attrition and stuff like that. Because that person who was a jerk in a handful was actually holding something for the community. So, How do yeah. you balance that out? Uh, because um, so if there is a workplace scenario and you have one person kind of, um, they're trying to say something, but maybe don't have the right tools to do it. And, and as a result, they're, uh, negatively affecting the boundaries of others where mm -hmm. they're causing uh, you know, physical or emotional harm to other people in the room because they're not, um, they haven't figured out how to, to let that emotion have its voice. How do you, how do you balance that kind of situation out in a mm -hmm. workplace? Well, in a workplace as an HR professional, I would say that's abuse. So we're in a different place. Right. Okay. If people okay. have physical or emotional damage, but if someone's just running around being like, Damn it, did you see what marketing did this time? You know, and they're always, you know, exploding with, with anger. But if people are actually hurting each other, then that's workplace bullying and that's, you know, we're okay. in a legal situation. Yeah. Right. Got it. Well, I wanted to go to, at the beginning, we talked about kind of a little bit about shadow work and we talked about, um, we're trying to be businesses that bring social change. But mm -hmm. I've heard you say in the past something about, like, Oftentimes, or or even in hinting at the shadow work, if we're trying to replace something, we 
we can fall into a trap of replacing it with uh, an actually a worse version. So if we're trying to <laughs> replace capitalism and really bring in a new version that's more equitable, yeah, how do we do it in a way that, like, on accident, we're we're not making it worse, but we actually are making it better? Is that even possible? I would say you'd need to listen to the emotions, shame, anxiety, sadness, depression, any of the emotions that would stop you from moving ahead, like traipsing. Um, there's something in the workplace, it's, it's elsewhere too, it's something in the workplace called the toxic positivity bias, where everybody does happiness, contentment, and joy, and there's nobody to challenge what's going on. So it's like, cha-la-la-la, you know, and then you eventually, walk, you know, traips off a cliff but to listen to maybe to make a space where you can ask the questions of those emotions so that people don't have to be overtaken by the emotions and become agitators but to actually say is there anything that we are feeling any kind of guilt or shame about and then be quiet and let people speak to it is there anything where we're losing our energy or when we look at it it's just feeling wrong and and of course, we won't all know. We can't all know everything or how things are going to turn out. But a lot of times, I don't know if you've been in meetings in workplaces where there's one person who's like, I don't think that's going to work for Akron. And they will just be talked over. Well, Akron's not that important, right? And there was this piece of information coming up from a person having a hesitation and having a concern and having, you know, some anxiety, some depression, some, right. There were, there were emotions that weren't, that aren't allowed. And so that conversation just got killed and that person's, you know, awareness just got pushed aside. Um, it just, it happens all the time as people sort of try to barrel forward and like, we got to get this done. We've got a deadline. We said we would do this by February 15th and we cannot be slowed down in this way. And you find out later after you push through for the February date that in April, now you got to go back and rebuild something because of Akron, right? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's like the information is in the social structure. Somebody knows. Mm. But if we're squelching all the so-called negative emotions, um, then we make ourselves and each other you know, fifty percent less intelligent. Oh, sixty percent, seventy percent less intelligent, because we don't have access to these aspects of our intelligence and cognition, which is what emotions are. Right, right, right. Yeah. So by not tapping into those that are tend to be on the negative sides, we're losing out all of that data, all that information. Yeah. Um, it's almost like yeah. you have to. It sounds like it's almost like you have to process it you you like see the emotions but you have to process it without your own emotions getting in the way like like if if everything's happy and i want to be happy then i i have to not avoid the you know the more negative emotions i have to be able to remove myself from my happiness for a minute and give that space for the voice yeah like more logically yeah, and I think the whole concept of positive and negative emotions gets us into such trouble. Hmm. I mean, there are no positive emotions and there are no negative ones. Oh, uh, right. Right? If someone steps across a boundary with you, happiness would be a negative emotion right then. Because happiness is like, yeah, let's do that again. That's fun. Anger would be the positive emotion in that situation because you need to reset a boundary. Right? 
So positive and negative, you know, just go flying out the window. But in the workplace, there is that, you know, toxic positivity bias, which um, really, there's so much, especially emotions that are in the shadow, there's so much deep wisdom in those emotions, precisely because they've been put in the shadow. The shadow is where all of the gold is. It's where all of the wisdom is. So if you do your emotion work, you're doing your shadow work. Boom, two for one. It's a gift with purchase. Definitely <laughs> helps reframe all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I would say, you know, like typical ways that businesses look at how did we do last year? You know, how did we do last quarter? And we look at sales going up, 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 up. Everything's going up. And if sales go down, maybe we can ask why, where, when, what is it about our product is no longer meeting the needs of the people? Instead of, we got to sell more stuff, you know, we got to keep going harder instead of slowing down and looking at what the data is telling us. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, one of the things that's been really helpful is thinking about the teams that I work on. Um, so seeing emotions as a, a gift and a resource and, and a way to push and dig into, mm -hmm. um, it seems many social enterprise businesses are also working with essentially like a customer group. Um, they are not, or they are a group of people that they serve. So I'm very curious to know about like how understanding these emotions can be helpful in thinking about, you know, often groups that are underserved uh, in some way, shape or form, how understanding better these emotions, even the context, like you just said, of not, they're not negative or positive, they're emotions, you know, mm -hmm. how that can be helping our work in, in terms of the people that we serve. Yes. I was watching something on Twitter unfold and somebody was suggesting let's have more AI, uh, artificial intelligence. And it's being used right now to do a lot of facial um, identification of emotion, which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, so much data says that people can't read emotions off the face. So this is huge waste of money. Oh, wow. But a, a number of people, uh, African American people, people of uh, uh, people from Mexico, people from Cuba, people from San Salvador, were really angry because uh, that facial recognition software generally does not work for people with darker skin and tones. And the people who had put up this, yay, AI, it's the best thing in the world, were sort of stumped and clueless about the fact that the thing they were so excited over as white people <laughs> with, with pale skin was creating such backlash. And yeah. they did not know what to do. And instead mm. of being able to listen and say, these are people who have been severely marginalized by what you think of as a really awesome product. Mm. And, you know, many, um, uh, I remember someone talking about a facial recognition or something to get out of a parking garage, something, and they had dark skin and they couldn't get out of the freaking parking garage until they found a way to put a light on their face, you know, with their phone so that they could be identified through. Wow. So, so not listening to that means that you're going to put a lot of money into something that cannot be used. That, that was priceless information that they were getting and they were just clueless. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This kind of, um, I think leads into a little bit of a conversation that I've heard you talk about a little bit, 
just on hierarchy and the effects of hierarchy. And, you know, it's, I think when we're talking about, you know, replacing a system with another system, we, we have a, a hard time doing in, that in a way that's not hierarchical yeah. and in doing so creating and, you know, reinforcing some of the problems that we are trying to solve. So I'd, I'd love to just hear a little more about your thoughts on, you know, hierarchy in the workplace and um, even in just the world and how that, how that's just not, not good for people, not good for communities. And what are the yeah. alternatives, you know? Yeah, there's hierarchy, meaning there's, you know, there's a boss, there's a board above the boss, there's, you know, managers under the boss, there's, there's sections under the managers, there's workers under the section managers, right? So there's these layers of, of hierarchy, people are definitely higher and lower, and the pay usually is a part of that hierarchical system. What they have known for many years is that people at the top of hierarchies tend not to have very strong empathy. And what they were doing is sort of blaming those people, saying, oh, those people at the top of hierarchies, they're all sociopaths. Like, they're all narcissists. Mm. And what they didn't understand was the social structure is as you move up in a hierarchy, you become less and less connected to the people right? Uh -huh. Our natural way of being as little primates is we, we check out the people who are near us. And depending on how healthy or unhealthy the hierarchy is, we have to look at the people above us because they have power over us, right? You've got to look at where the power is. You've got to look up and then you keep your, your, you know, your stability with your people. If you're smart, like you'll create a good layer, but very few people have the energy psychological or otherwise to look down. Mm. So the higher you are in the hierarchy, the fewer people there are for you to empathize with, the fewer people there are above you, and the more and more and more and more people there are below you. And you don't really have the capacity to look at them. Wow. So your empathy is damaged as you move up a hierarchy. And what also happens is at the bottom those people at the very bottom of a seven-layer hierarchy are checking everybody and they're looking up seven layers, so they often have hyper-empathy. They may not have come in with it, but you d you'll see hyper-empathy at the bottom of a hierarchy and hypo-empathy at the top. And so people who uh, have naturally higher trait empathy tend not to climb because they have no interest in losing their empathy, right? They are not... Uh, rewards, you know, they're not carrot and stick people. They're just not that interested in that whole game. And so what you see is people who are unnaturally hypoempathic at the top of hierarchies. And you see people who are unnaturally hyperempathic at the bottom. And throughout the entire structure, you have empathic and emotional damage, uh, regardless of what kind of hierarchy it is. Um, so if you had intended to create hyper-empathy at the bottom, and if you had intended to create a kind of sociopathy at the top, yay you, because you should have a hierarchy. But if you did not intend to do that, you need to look at a different structure. Mm. And a good way to look at it is to create pods around a central 
so everybody's in a flat architecture. But marketing needs to be separate from sales, which needs to be separate from production, which needs to be separate from, you know, whatever, whatever the little bits are. And then that if there are going to be any managers at all, they manage processes and not people. Mm. So if the process starts to break down, then you ask what's going on and you talk to the people and you follow the emotions and whatever. But these are called flat or egalitarian systems. And uh, there's some beautiful examples of them. I think Gore-Tec, the company that makes the fabric, is a flat egalitarian. And there's one called Semco in Brazil that's quite famous. Um, and they go even further at Semco. They pay everybody universal basic income mm-hmm. and nobody does any, um, you know, nobody's checking their time cards. Everyone sets their own work hours and their own vacation. I mean, wow. it's a tremendous trust, but with that kind of structure, you the trust kind of comes naturally because nobody's being lorded over and nobody's being artificially pushed below others. Wow, that's amazing. That's fascinating. Yeah, really yeah, we'll have to learn more about that. I'm very curious to dig in more, and because I feel like, I feel like for me, like I'm trying to. Th- think through different structures and, and kind of the same thing. Like how do I create a new system without making something worse? Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm a pretty high empathetic person, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also finding myself in leadership roles often. Yeah. So, um, and even with the growth of my, my own business, I love that you use the word capacity because I think that that's part of the struggle uh, as mm-hmm. our business grows it's it's kind of forcing us to hire more, which is forcing me to have less capacity for everyone that's a part of the team. Yeah. And it's almost like I have to pass that on in some way to other people. And, and you know, maybe pods is a way to, to be able to do that. So that is definitely something that I'm, I find myself currently wrestling with. How do I create a new system but still be hold on to um, the strong characteristics of empathy? Yeah, it's difficult. I have an egalitarian flat, um, businesses here and oh my word meetings can take a long time <laughs> you know and <laughs> making decisions can take a long time but the decisions are everybody's everybody's I don't want to say on board we're not in a ship but everyone has had their say about the decision and they become you know true group decisions that we can all support and if things go bad we all kind of understand why so nothing is kept away from the people. Um, and yes, it can sometimes take longer. But when you make, um, you know, uh, top-down decisions and nobody is consulted, it may be really quick, but down the line, if something goes wrong, and it will, because that's the nature of life and business, right? Um, uh, it's going to take so much more time and energy to fix it than if everyone had had their say in the beginning. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. Um, How do you think that this whole conversation is playing into the great resignation? Good question. (laughs) We're seeing that right now. That is so good because I think people have seen that the workplace, especially hierarchical workplaces, just don't care about them. And because there's that toxic positivity bias and the emotions are not welcome, you know, the full range of emotions are not welcome. I think as people have been going home during the pandemic to work or as they've been 
uh, forced to work in an unsafe situation. I think they've seen through the, you know, the the man behind the curtain. They are now seeing what is true about the workplace, which is that it is not a healthy place for human beings. It is not made for um, human health. It is made for capitalism. And mm. increasing capital up at the top and not where we are as workers. It's, um, and I think people are just like, you know what? Bye. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. Um, and it's so funny to see workplaces going, do we give them more money? You know, what about gluten-free snack wagons? What about longer vacations? <laughs> it's like, no, just basic human dignity. How would that be? Do you want a book on it? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Let me write yeah. you a book on that. <laughs> totally. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think speaking of books, we you have been a great resource. And can you tell us a little bit more as we kind of wrap up about your most recent book, mm-hmm. The Power of Emotions at Work? Yeah, and it talks about what we've been talking about. If if you're about how social structure affects humans, how it affects emotions, um, how to understand that the emotions that are coming up are information and they're really valuable information. And how to create what I call an emotionally well-regulated social structure so that people are comfortable and that that the workplace is not draining them unnecessarily. I also talk about what is emotional labor, what is emotion work, and what is empathy work. And are any of these supported? The answer is usually no. Uh, if people are doing emotional labor, which is to manage your emotions or the emotions of others in the context of your work. So someone doing um, uh, customer service, huge emotional labor, huge, massive emotional labor. But there is basically no support for it at all, or even the understanding to call it that. And people may get burnt out in jobs like this and not even have the language to understand what happened to them. So it's bringing a lot of language into the emotionally... um, hyper-ignorant world of the workplace. And uh, emotions have not been welcome in the workplace. They just haven't. And it's created so much, not just suffering, but tragedy. Uh, There are a lot of studies that talk about, uh, here in the United States, that there's an estimated 120,000 people a year who die from the psychological damage that's done in the workplace. Wow. This is not fires. This is not chemical spills. This is a crappy environment that wow. injures people. And, wow. Um, so it's really serious, right? You know, I make I make jokes, ha, ha, ha. and uh, there's rainbows on the cover of my book because <laughs> it's my book. But um, uh, it's a really um, it's a tragic situation what we've allowed the workplace to become. Yeah. Well, and I. Uh, even in this interview and and previous conversations I've been fortunate enough to have with you, like the language has been such a powerful tool for mm-hmm. me um, just to give me like the context, like even again, just what you said earlier, that they, these are not negative or positive, And I was using that in the wrong way was a really helpful reframing of how I could see emotions. Mm-hmm. I know that for a lot of people in this social enterprise sector, like I think that uh, you know, you you see people that tend to overwork, that they're so passionate about the work or the cause that our work-life balance can be off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, we're giving just everything, every a lot of the work, I think, for many of us is emotional. 
And we're trying to figure out how to bring those things to the table. So I just feel like adding new language and is mm-hmm. is such a powerful tool to be able to navigate our own emotions in the work that we're bringing. Yeah. And I was thinking about the great resignation and thanks Lauren for bringing it up because if we could listen to the emotions, it could be the great evolution. Mm. It could be the great salvation of an incredibly damaging place that mm. doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be that way. There's, there's no rule that says, let's have a terrible place for people that will eventually kill them. Um, how about no? How about how if you don't do that? Yeah. Well, um, this has just been a very insightful and challenging and just overall fascinating conversation, Carla. So we really, really appreciate you coming onto the Social Enterprise Alliance podcast and sharing your expertise and your wisdom um, with our audience and with us because it really is, it's a dire situation. Um, and especially if we are in um, in this kind of work and our, our members and our, our listeners are in, you know, really, really important organizations that are doing incredible work. You know, we all want to be aware of how each little part of what we're doing and how we're accomplishing that work and how we're treating each other. Um, it all just plays a massive part. You know, we can't, we can't have one without the other. So yeah. this is really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, David.